As you know, the Brahma Viharas are big teaching in Buddhist practice. In fact, they're probably pre-Buddhist. Uh, there are Jain texts which mention these four Brahma Viharas of loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And there are yogic texts which we don't quite know from which they date. Uh, they're mentioned in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. Um, so they may not be purely Buddhist alone, yeah. which I believe bolsters my case to acknowledge these Brahma Viharas as uh, universal capacities of the human heart. In fact, as I said last night, I believe they are they're constituting properly what makes us human. It is the capacity for this heart. However, undeveloped these capacities may be, or you may feel they may be in your own life, the capacity to resonate with friendliness and loving, affectionate kindliness to something, the capacity to resonate with the pain and the unsatisfactoriness or the loss, the grief in other beings' lives, the capacity to resonate in a celebratory manner in terms of joy, the goodness, the success in other people's life, and the capacity to hold a relational equanimous position with others. Now, these are, uh, I believe, and this is something really Buddhist teaching has to offer, and I have a feeling the Western, uh, Western mind has yet to fully acknowledge this. These are un- indispensable for any notion of health, any notion of growth, any notion of realization, any notion of maturity is referenced in terms of those four Brahma-viharas. Now look at your health system here, or look at any Western society's health system, and you realize that we have no notion of health in our societies that actually has an access to these Brahma-viharas. I don't know what your health system looks like. I live in another, over, over the pond. But the health systems over there look like not about health. Their decisions, their political decisions about money. And which illnesses to distribute what amount of money to, yeah? or which professional segment to address particular illnesses uh, to be allotted what sums of money. That's what health politics or health decisions are in Europe. I don't know what it is looking like here. You better, you'd better judges for this. But where I come from, the people who call themselves health ministries have nothing to do with health. You know, they have no notion of health. They're, in fact, they're wildly embarrassed if they're, point, if they're pressured to make statements about health. You know? so they point to a certain gen- generic absence of diseases, you know, and then they fish out their ICD-10 and DSM-5s maybe or, you know, and tell me these are the diseases we have and the absence of any such documented disease we, we would then say is health. But obviously this is not what health is. Psychology hasn't delivered as yet the unified field theory of happiness. We're still waiting. So Buddhism has a few things to offer on that score. Buddhism says that there is no health without Brahma-viharas. There is no realization without Brahma-viharas. If you know enlightened people, that's what you would expect them to behave like. Loving, compassionate, joyous, and capable of leaving you within your boundary, of respecting your otherness. 
So if you know any awakened beings, then suss them out. This, this is what I would expect them to behave like. If they don't behave like this, chances are they're not enlightened. Yeah? So we have them at the very bottom of the human, as almost, I wouldn't say archetypes, but as universal availabilities in the human mind, maybe not developed, maybe still latent. That's the, kind of the bottom line. You can't lose them. Whatever you may think of yourself, they're there. Yeah. You don't have to fight for them. You don't have to work hard for them. They're, they're gifts. Yeah. That's what makes you a human being. That's why you're in this realm. Yeah. And at the other end, the, the expressions of a completely freed human being, freed from all the pollutants of the mind, freed from ignorance, freed from greed, from hatred, from desire. And in between, these Brahma-viharas um, are talked of as forms of practices. Sometimes they're virtues, sometimes they're meditation objects, sometimes they're states which we try to deepen in our mind. Yeah? So the, there's, uh, before we go into the practical stuff, it is um, a wish to basically acknowledge the profundity of these teachings. You know, when I started meditating some, something 30-plus uh, years ago, uh, I didn't hear of these Brahma-viharas. It wasn't about Brahma-viharas. Later on, when I heard about them, I found Brahma-viharas, you know, this is for people who can't concentrate. Yeah? <laughs> this is sort of the soft option, okay? You can't do samadhi, at least be a nice guy, yeah? Don't, <laughs> don't do much harm, you know? Be a kind sort of guy. That's how it started with me. Yeah? Um, and I neglected them in my early days of practice because my mind could concentrate reasonably easy. I felt this was not for me. It was basically, it was sort of the, well, it was kind of emotional. Yeah? And I wasn't about emotion. I was, I was on a spiritual path now. Yeah? I was kind of cutting through this psychological, emotional Craft and basically go to the business. Yeah? And um, it dawned on me, and I was maybe not very gifted in that one, um, it dawned on me over the years that basically there's more to them. There's some things you can't just kind of hammer your way through with samadhi or kind of go for the pristine wisdom bit, you know, um, and just, you know, pierce ignorance. And it kind of dawned on me that some things actually, once you start getting a little more real what's going on in your own mind and heart, um, it's not wisdom that does the job alone because although wisdom is indispensable and ultimately the liberating quality, some things you need a lot of compassion actually to look at before the wisdom starts delivering its goods. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if you don't have that, you, you quickly turn away. And it's, it's kind of like... I don't know, milk powder. You've got milk powder on the spoon. You know, the good stuff is all in there. You know? But if you, don't have it if you don't have it dissolved in water, it's very difficult to get at the stuff. You, know, you just blow it off the spoon before, you actually, before it reaches your mouth. You know? So it dawned on me over the years of practice, particularly when I entered monastic life, that there is no way that I could grow in this if I was not going to be befriend <clears throat> the condition I was in. I was not going to befriend my mind if I was not going to befriend myself as unenlightened as I was, as neurotic and as 
uptight and as, a, as scattered and as lost as, as I was. There was no way I was going to hang in there if I was not going to befriend my condition. And, you know, one day I woke up and I found myself in a monastic community consisting of other individuals who, you know, you don't end up in a monastic community if you, if you do what your parents tell you, you know? <laughs> You don't end up in a monastic community if you do what your friends tell you. Or Generally, the people in those days ending up in monastic communities, usually men, were sort of fairly, let's say, to put that politely, they had an over-average resilience against standard ways of conditioning, Let's put it like that. In other words, they were self-willed, you know, hard-edged, bordering asocial individuals, yeah? (laughs) Fierce, fierce, independent individualists. And suddenly they found themselves in communities, you know? I remember when we tried to actually acknowledge to ourselves that we had relationships to each other. (laughs) We don't have relationships. We're men, you know? We, We kind of... We have issues, maybe, somewhere. <laughs> but then these people kept milling around you. You know, you find you work with guys, you, you share rooms with guys, you, you run institutions with guys, you meditate with guys, you're doing out there on the building set. We were all in a building phase. So there were these guys. The whole, my whole life was full of guys, and I hadn't inv- invited them to be there. You know? <laughs> you know, these were guys I would have never chosen to even sit on the same table with. And suddenly you find yourself living with them. So it was quite a sort of a, a wake-up call, actually. I remember a few weeks into my novicehood, I realized that my major practice was not, as I thought in monasteries, about meditation. My major practice was sharing my my bedroom with six other guys, you know, who some of them I felt were really, um, you know, I, I'd have some DSM-5 terms for them now. <laughs> yeah. So then I realized my major practice was getting on with these guys, yeah. how to share my life with these men who were equally moved. Uh, I may not have looked very normal then either. <coughs> Sharing my life and my living spaces and my rhythms of a day but these men who were obviously by, inspired by something I was also inspired to the degree that we were willing to put our lives on the line for this and to basically do this, you know, not just for a weekend or, or a kind of a test visit or so, but they were all in, you know, that kind of... And suddenly you find, okay, this is obviously the Buddha's gang here, yeah? And this, this, is, this is my crew now, yeah? It's not what I thought. It's not what I would have bargained for, but um, good, let's make this work. (laughs) And suddenly that practice about meeting the stranger in your own heart and befriending what you feel unacceptable in your own heart and meeting the stranger in a, you know, real existing other being uh, and meeting that which is not necessarily acceptable or affirmative of your own value structures or your own... um, you know, reality consensus in other people. And suddenly, we, there we were, coming from different countries, languages, backgrounds, and all touched by something which came to us from a long, long way. And it was deep enough that echo in these hearts that we felt called to do this. And yet we were quite hapless with each other. And it has taken many years that some of those impossible people who have... Several of them have become my friends in the meantime. 
we actually, you know, you learn to meet each other. You learn to be with each other. You learn to let each other in. And not say, you have to be conforming to my notions of what a decent human being is or a normal human being is uh, or, um, you know, a likable human being is before you can get into my heart. And we kind of say, no, you're here. Basically, I know you're a moral, you're a moral guy. Yeah? You're committed to this. I let you in. Yeah. What if I just let you in the way you are? What if I just had a relationship to you? <laughs> to you? And that seemed to transform something. Yeah? It wasn't always easy work. Um, and yet, if you probably pushed me to say what... I felt was most transformative, then it was probably that bit. It was my bit of understanding the concept of Sangha with people who I would never have chosen to be in my life. And I think some of us have have become smoother in the process. You know, you start off as kind of edgy, hard rocks, and you end up as smooth, smoother pebbles, you know, over the years. Um, and that's not a uniforming pattern. Uh, you learn to meet other people in their otherness somehow. And by doing that process, you, you have a better chance to actually meet your own unfamiliar territory. It makes you psychologically more capable of actually understanding both yourself more deeply and others more deeply if you engage in this process. So Brahma Viharas have become from being a marginal practice, the soft option for people who can't meditate, in my understanding, they have become central. They have become central to my understanding of Buddhist teaching. They have become central to my understanding of the process of growth and maturity. They have become central to my understanding of health. And they have become central to my understanding of awakening. So before we do any other exercises, I I would like to make this statement that there is nothing of value in this world that is devoid of a connection to these Brahma-viharas. The most pristine wisdom needs to be embedded in a relational context. It needs to be embodied in a particular being. Think of the people who have brought you into contact with Buddhist teachings. In my case, these were always specific people. They came from a particular culture. They came from a particular background. I was not met with a book. I was met with a human being who somehow was very specific. Asian or Western, educated or not, old or young. It was very specific. I can't disentangle Buddhist teaching from the people who've carried that teaching. I can't. You know, there are sometimes people have the idea of getting a clean Buddhism, you know, liberated from all this cultural riffraff that has accrued around it and encrusted the whole thing, the whole pristine wisdom teachings. I think this is just a dream. There is no clean Buddhism of that nature. Buddhism comes with a plethora of uh, paraphernalia. And uh, when you meet people who are touched by that teaching, and when I always met that teaching via people, then you will probably meet the specific person a specific teacher, a specific tradition, a specific group of people who somehow have a specific way of doing what they call Buddhism, which 
you know, as the year goes by, you realize it can look quite different. Yeah? So when Western folks see Buddhism, they see little individual cushions and little individual sabutons, and they think, you know, Buddhism is the practice for the individualistic path, isn't it? This is, this is what we're about, you know. Self-knowledge, self-determination, self-realization. This is what we're doing. All on our own, against the universe. <laughs> yeah? You speak to a Thai person about this, it sounds very different. Speak to a Tibetan person about Buddhism, very different experience. So it will take some time till we understand our own goggles with which we look at Buddhist teaching. But if we keep looking at it, that teaching will reveal some very fundamental statements about the nature of connectedness. The connectedness of our self-constructs, the connectedness of these bodies, the connectedness of these hearts. Very simple things that you can't be really happy if the people who you connected with are not happy. That if you can't really enjoy if the pleasure you uh, derive from your enjoyments is abusive or goes at the expense of what is good for other people. And the implications of this are not just sentimental, they are political. There will be times when we will need to think about what Buddhism means as social, political philosophy. I'm not the right man for this, and maybe the time hasn't yet come, but there will be a time when we will need to think about this. But I hope before we think about this, and when we think about this, that we do that on the basis of having a deeper understanding of these Brahma-viharas, the place they occupy in Buddhist teaching and the place they occupy in our own practice. You see, what makes us so successful as a species is our, um, our capacity to empathy. This is not just a nice feeling to have or a kind of sense of connectedness and belonging. They, those are powerful psychological motives. But, you know, the fact that human be beings could grow brains of that size and in, 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 in that shape our, our brains are looking like today is directly due to, say, social stability around the process of conception and pregnancy and birth of, of, of little humans because uh, it needed a certain degree of stability of a social group around somebody pregnant that allowed pregnancy to become longer and that the, uh, the, the women pregnant could afford to be more dependent and they could afford that because the people around them were more there. Yeah? The gradual introduction of the male into rearing the species was a major feat of Homo sapiens sapiens, yeah? and that has <clears throat> had quite profound physiological consequences, namely um, in terms of brain development. This was possible. Sorry, sorry, forgive me. <clears throat> the effect of that increased social stability and the security that came with this made it possible that greater degrees of dependency were possible. First, of dependency of the female on the group and then dependency of the infant of the mother and the group around it. And that made it possible that we could start developing brain functions we just, we just couldn't have done if we had to operate uh, like kangaroos, you know, who give, who give birth to their young and they kind of crawl 
up on mommy's hairy leg and find a pouch and find a nipple and do that all on their own straight off the birth. Human beings don't do that straight off the birth. They need a lot of maintenance. If you just let, if you just leave them there and wait till they crawl up somewhere and find a nipple, they die. They can't do that. Human brains are completely unfinished when they, <laughs> when the baby is born, as many of you will know. So the fact that groups were capable of existing <clears throat> meant <clears throat> groups only work if its members have an interest in what's going on with the other, have a capacity to an attuned response to what's going on with the other. So um, the consequence of our capacity and willingness to empathy, in other words, to forms of Brahma-Vihara, is basically having profound physiological consequences for human development, brain development. There are people who know a lot more about this, and some of them may be sitting in here, who knows, uh, who could tell you all this in detail. But the development of human brain is, a, brain is a testimony to the human mind's capacity to empathy. If you have a, a group of people on the beach, even if they don't know each other, they notice each other. They notice there are others there. There is a kind of sense of something happening there that you don't get when you see a bunch of um, monitor lizards on the beach. Yeah? It just doesn't give the same feeling. It doesn't even give the same feeling when you have a bunch of cows on the meadow. Human beings pick up on each other much more than other creatures do. You have brain centers that are designated to the detection of mimic expression because it is crucial to our survival to quickly gauge whether you are friendly or whether you're hostile, whether you are uh, nauseated or whether you're interested. Yeah? So the human brain has developed all this stuff. We're very, very important to each other. However fiercely independent you may feel, however, um, however um, misanthropic your outlook may be, you know, Human be people matter an awful lot to you. And why, do, why is this the case? Because we, we are a homo empathicus. Yeah? We resonate with each other. Nothing distracts us so much in our meditation than, than the sound of a human voice next door. You can get used to ACs, you can get used to cars, but if your neighbors are having an argument, it's really difficult to sit quietly on your cushion. Yeah? Or having sex, or for what you know, whatever, whatever may be going on, or growling at the kids, or something like that. So we we need to acknowledge the depth to which we are influenced by our component of empathy, and that's not just a Buddhist fantasy. This is not just how it should be. This is how Buddhists dream up the world. The language in which the Buddha speaks is not a psychological language. It's a pre-psychological time. Although his attitude is quite psychological, his language is not. So we need to tease that out from cosmological terms, from a language which simply does not think of the human mind in psychological terms. We didn't, don't think in psychological terms for very long. You know, I don't know. Maybe you have literary scholars in here, but I would say... Somewhere in the early part of the 20th century, language became psychological. In German, I could tell you, Kafka still refused to use psychological language. But afterwards, it was basically done. It was cooked. If you wanted to speak about interior experience, you needed to use psychological language. So 
somewhere onwards for the 1920s, um, something happened. If you look at guys who wrote in the 18th or 19th century about interior experience, they lose very different language, Victorian poets. Um, so our own way of thinking about experience in psychological terms is not very old. I'd say it's barely 100 years old. And other times, obviously, have th thought of and spoken of interior experience in other ways. And we may need to make some space simply for translating efforts of referring to internal experience in non-psychological ways. That effort becomes increasingly difficult as we stop reading, um, as we reduce attention to five bullet point PowerPoint presentations and the duration of, an, of a TV ad. Uh, obviously, reading becomes increasingly a specialist effort. And translating other cultures' way of referring to internal experience will have something to do with reading. So uh, not many uh, more people seem to be making that effort. And yet, we're, we remain humans. We are touched by others. We are touched. We see images and something happens here. I tell you a, a gruesome story and something happens in your brain. You know? Steven Pinker has this dreadful example of <clears throat> describing, saying that this is a magic thing. Language is a matching thing. You can actually produce fairly specific chemical process in other people's brains. You know? and he, he, he then proceeds to describe the mating ritual of, of, of octopus, you know? how kind of the male approaches to female. And if the female allows that approach, the male kind of starts stroking her head, yeah, the top of her skull. And if she tolerates that, you know, he changes color. And then he reaches one, with one of his arms, he reaches over, yeah, and hands over a sperm packet. Yeah. And that gives you some very specific feeling, isn't it? It does something to you. Yeah. So... <laughs> If ever you meet a, an octopus of the opposite sex, or God knows even of the same sex, and you know, and he kind of starts stroking you overhead, you have a fairly clear idea what's going to happen next. <laughs> so there's some, some very specific things we can do with language. And we, this, this does something to us. We can, we can do Maybe what ants are doing, you know, ants are kind of sharing little bits of their stomach content, so you actually get a feeling what the rest of the populace is feeling like. Have you ever seen ants meeting each other in line? And they kind of have a little ritual. They kind of share a little bit of what's actually going on in their bellies. And by that, they have a physiological way of communicating what's going on with the rest of the population. You know? Imagine you would do that, everybody you meet there out in the elevator, rather than just say, hello, hi, you know, I need to go down to the basement or to the ground floor. You kind of park a moment and get something up. <laughs> yeah. So if we have entomologists in here, I'm sorry, this may have been a bit simplistic, but you get my idea. You know, we're not the only ones who are exchanging bits of information that make us connected. We do that in our own specific human ways. One of them is facial recognition. One of them is social ritual. One of them is, you know, acknowledging different times of, you know, how, how much space we give each other, how much eye contact we have. Yeah. 
all that, we're quite different. Which parts we consider erotic and which not, uh, you know, that can differ quite a bit from cultures. If you've lived in Asia, you will notice that some things you are just used to be doing are done quite differently than you were used to be doing them back home. And they're, they're, people have quite clear feelings. You know? If you point your feet at Buddha statues or at teachers or so in uh, Thailand, that means something different than you do that in New York, I would expect. So, these Brahma Viharas are not a Buddhist invention. They're not romanticized particular feeling states I should have developed a long time ago if I was a good Buddhist meditator. And unfortunately, I'm not, so I can't do them. Uh, don't make these Brahma Viharas into something on your list of things you unfortunately can't do. Consider translating these Brahma Viharas into, uh, consider that you're already doing them. But you may be very selective where you do them or with whom you do them. Uh, consider doing them to yourself. That'd be the most radical first suggestion. You can have Brahma Vihara, you can have metta for the knee that is in pain. You can have metta for the, for, for the leg that has to have a painful knee in it. You can have metta for the mind that is in aversion against the painful knee. You can have metta for the whole thing that sits here that is full of aversion against the pain that it can't help having uh, for a posture that it wouldn't choose if it, uh, if it uh, had more, uh, more options than sitting here. So you can have metta on every level of that experience, for the knee, for the leg, for the mind, for the whole being that is filled with an emotion of resistance against a painful sensation it doesn't want, uh, being the result of a posture it feels compelled to do because there is peer group pressure. Yeah? Yeah? So you, you can have metta on so many levels, and this is very powerful. You can have metta for a mind that uh, slavishly lusts after things. Or you can have metta for somebody who is completely reactionary in, 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 in his or her outlook because she's contracting around some form of anxiety. Or You can have, while you may not agree or consent to the reactiveness in that person, you may extend your connectedness to the fear that brings about that reactiveness. You see, because you know fear. You know fear from yourself. We know that we blossom when we are met with kindness. We know that it helps when we are in pain, that if there is somebody there, even if they can't fix us, it helps if we're not alone in this. We know that from personal experience. We know how good joy feels. We know how good it feels to be somehow intact with an okayness of things. And not completely alone, but somehow, you know, being with your love back home somewhere in a place and you're not catching each other's attention. Each one is doing what he or she is needing to do. And yet it's nice to be there and be left. Yet there is no demand to your attention. And yet there is a sort of shared togetherness. It's not very ecstatic. It's not very romantic, maybe. And yet... There's something profoundly sweet about this. Uh, shared presence, and yet each one leaves the other one to do what he or she wants to do. 
So we all know these Brahma Viharas. Suspect yourself of them. Good, enough of me, let's sit. Yeah. Good, close your eyes. If you're on a chair, make sure you have both feet firmly planted on the ground. You have some weight on. Uh, it's fine to have them on, kish, on cushions, that's fine. Just make sure that you have a little bit of weight on your feet so that your feet help you balance your posture. And if you can, move away from the backrest so that you can sit from your pelvis. Feel that this pelvis is holding the spine. Feel the solidity. Feel the equal amounts of weight in the left and the right buttock. Maybe you can feel your ilium. Feel that the small of your back is full. Make sure that it is not hollowed. So if, if in doubt, just place the back of your hand in the small of your back, and maybe a hand on your belly, and just gently fill out that small of the back. So it's a slight rolling movement of your pelvis. The idea is that your vertebrae, your lumbar vertebrae, rise reasonably vertically. And that helps you to give the weight of your body through the sit bones into the chair, into the cushion. And then you build up your spine slowly, moving up with your attention. You don't need to count your 24 vertebrae, but it's good definitely to feel a few of them and see whether it's possible, particularly the upper part, to widen your chest, open your bronchial area, as if you want to Move your chest slightly forward and lowering your scapula, lowering your shoulder blades. Shoulders are falling. Sternum comes slightly up without hollowing the small of your back. So as if you're coming completely into the space here. Sometimes that gives us funny feelings. We start feeling this is conceited or I'm exaggerating or... Feel how the breath widens your intracostal muscles, your ribcage. Hands are heavy. Lower arms are heavy. You can feel the weight in your elbows. Feel the weight on your legs or in your lap, wherever the hands may be. And then see whether you can help yourself with a little image. Image is nicked from the Alexander technique. I imagine you're being drawn by, as, as, as if you were a string puppet, so marionette. You're kind of slightly pulled above your cranium, topmost point in your skull. And you're suspended from the top rather than sitting up from the ground. You're actually suspended. So imagine a slight traction being exerted through your skull onto your the neck, cervical vertebrae, slightly pulling up. And this pull goes right down to your lumbar vertebrae. Exaggerate a little bit, feeling the pull going up, slightly being raised up. And now you relax. Once you're kind of optimized, you try to relax into that posture. Just a little tiny slump. 
And now notice how that feels. Try to remember that sensation. Try to impregnate your mind with that sensation, how it feels to feel straight, sit straight. Now let's turn to the breath with our attention in a sort of wide, welcoming way. Make the focus of that attention at least the size of your hand. And you're meeting the area of breath where it is most noticeable. Sometimes that's the belly, sometimes that's the chest, sometimes that's the nose. Find out what it is for you. Take a moment and then determine that this is, the, this is your area of action. This is your mindfulness anchor now. This area you've just found. And this is where you're going to declare that you're going to settle your attention there. A welcoming, slightly inquisitive and curious type of attention. But that is not controlling it's not hard. If you're worried about losing the breath, uh, chances are you continue breathing. You're not likely to lose it. So let the breath come to that place and let the sensations arising at that place become the objects of your attention. They become the anchor of your mindfulness, your attentional focus in that place. Breathing in, feeling the increase of these sensations. Breathing out, feeling the decrease of these sensations. Sometimes it's difficult to really discern a, a particular phase of sensation. So just discern it as long as it is possible. And when you lose it, you just wait there till it comes back. It's important that you go to this place in the body and that you feel whatever it is you feel there. We're not visualizing the breath. And maybe even more clearly, we're not observing the breath. You're not watching it. You're actually feeling it. There's a difference there. You're going to that place in the body, belly or chest or nose, and then you feel whatever it feels there. Not the emotion, maybe there isn't one. Just the say sensations in its coming, in its going. You're trying to follow the career of that little sensation. Its appearance, its increase, its gradual tapering off, its disappearance. So that's plan A, following the stages in the career of a sensation connected to my breathing. It, while it is possible to name these stages, I don't actually think you need to do that. I, I think what is the easiest is just go to that part of the body Stay there with your attention and just feel the sensations in the body as it comes, increases, decreases, disappears. 
So that's plan A. Plan B is when you find that your attention is doing something else. Then it is necessary to bring your attention back. Bring it back kindly. Bring it back reliably. Be prepared to intervene when your mind is doing other things. Don't just wait till it stops and returns by its own. You may risk waiting quite a long time. So plan B means I notice I'm doing something else than I have agreed with myself. I have left plan A. And plan B now suggests that you intervene and say, okay, I'm going back. You do that in kindly but reliable sort of ways, like taking a kid by the hand and focusing his or her attention back on something mommy has chosen. Come, look here. Look at this. Rather than let the kid run away and do what it wants to do or what it is used to do or what is just the strongest sensory offer right now, you take your attentional kid by the hand and you bring it back to the breath and its sensations. And you do that as many times as is needed. Don't expect this to just work out of the box. A whole exercise consists of this not working out of the box. The important thing is you bring it back and you bring it back gently. A hundred times, a thousand times, doesn't matter. The important is you know what plan A is and you're willing to engage plan B if you're not doing plan A. And that you don't pass any judgments on yourself or your talents as a meditator or the Buddha or the world or whatever. You don't pass any judgments on the basis of this experience. So let's keep doing that. Breath comes and goes. Attention in a soft focus in the area I have chosen to be the area of my breath is most tangible, most notable. And then I try to continually bring the attention to the present moment experience of the sensations in their change. And if the mind strays away, I gently and quickly return it to my anchor area. Let's do a few stretches. Fine. Let's try to identify some um, of these Brahma Viharas a little more. Um, I guess for those of you who were here last night, there will be some repetition. Uh, Albeit, I have only briefly actually uh, mentioned them individually. The first one, Metta Maitri, comes from basically the, the fundamental concept in there is friendship. Yeah. 
it, it's not easily mapped onto any of our notions of love. Um, we have many different notions of love and uh, of the, yeah, yeah, just, just improve me, yeah. Thank you. Uh, of the three Greek notions of uh, eros, philia, and agape, it probably is closest to philia, to the notion of friendship, friendliness. Um, there are semantic connections in uh, Sanskrit and Pali, both to um, mitata, to friendship, but also to maituna, actually, to sexuality. Yeah? So there's, there's quite, quite a lot of... Uh, there's a, a rich uh, semantic field connection uh, connected to, to metta. But the primary meaning would be that of friendliness, friendship. It, that's what we extend if we are friendly, yeah? if we befriend something. And I think that's maybe more helpful than the concept of love, because you need to do some work with the concept of love. Um, while I think it's not a bad word for metta, I think it, it is a highly inflated word in our cultures. Uh, it is much abused, and so, so many of us have all kinds of secondary and tertiary reaction to that concept. Um, and the concept of friendship maybe is more, more, more appropriate. It's also... Um, it is less exclusive. That's the big thing. You know, meta is not exclusive. You can do that with anything and anybody. It is directed to, towards something completely non-carnal in another being. It is directed to something that is equally appropriate for somebody very small and somebody who is a potential partner or somebody who is very old. It is something that is, in, in a profound way, non-specific. It is not about liking. It does not base itself on sympathy or on preference. Yeah. Metta is the capacity to see the good in something. Yeah. It is capable of immediately recognizing and resonating with the fundamental good in somebody else or in something. Um, and as that, it is not exclusive. Even the uh, tradition, the Visuddhimagga, 900 years after the Buddha's teaching, um, insists that we should not practice metta to dead people. I don't think actually that is true. Uh, if you bring up in your metta practice your feelings of gratitude and richness and fondness, even if it is referring to people who are no longer living, uh, I cannot see any harm in this. Yeah. So uh, the quality of metta is generally something that gives us a sense of richness. If we are receiving metta, it makes us feel validated in, in psychological terms. It gives us more space. You know, the example of the the child uh, that is basically having a bigger space for the emotional experiences it has to undergo. And if the space becomes bigger, the intensity of the emotion decreases, and that is uh, usually experienced as relief. Uh, meta, when we... 
practice this gives us a sense of connection. It affirms the notion that there's something I care. That's another key concept, care. Now, we don't need to uh, do it like in the sense of the German philosopher Heidegger, but just in the simple sense of I care. In other words, this matters to me, and I extend my uh, benevolence would be a technical term. It's a fundamental and almost unconditional wish that whatever I am in meeting here is touched by well-being, is safe, is cared for, is in, in a good condition. And we all know this is a very powerful thing to receive, and yet um, sometimes we, we find it difficult to generate that sense. Yeah? So, to befriend, because we make stipulations, you can't just be my friend, you know, you've got to go, undergo a training. Yeah? <laughs> uh, there's conditions here, you know, you just can't kind of come in and be my friend, you know, that'd be really risky for me to do. So I'm going to make sure that this is carefully monitored and screened, you know before you can kind of come in and just receive my friendliness, because obviously there's only a limited amount of this. And, you know, once I'm being friendly, you know, I might actually enjoy being that way, and then you're suddenly not there. This is going to be make, making it difficult for me. So I must make sure that I'm not too friendly to too many people, because I lose control in that process. Yeah. I guess you'll get where I'm driving at. So, in fact... We're not familiar seeing this quality in people who are intellectual, for example. I remember going to Thailand and I had the privilege of studying with a man. I left my English communities uh, when I was a monk uh, because I was a bit fed up with just building monasteries all the time. And, and actually I decided I wanted to learn something about Pali language and about texts more. And while we had nice libraries over in England, it was clear to me that if I stayed there, I would just never have time to actually knuckle down and learn. You know? Because we were living this kind of full-on communal program uh, early in the morning, late at night, and basically learning a language was always competing with you know, writing to mom and you know, darning your socks. So this is a bad condition for uh, approaching some, some of the more, say, intellectual pursuits. And I realized I needed to get away from them guys. So I did. After a few years, I with certain trepidation, approached my teacher and told him that I want to exactly do what he said was actually not needed, namely go and study Pali. Uh, and to my surprise, he was very grand-hearted and uh, offered me his support yeah? uh, in leaving him. Uh, and going away from his communities. It wasn't that there was such an abundance of Buddhist monks over in the West. So, you know, generally they come in, once they've been around for a few years, they're quite useful, not just in building. That may not have been my great forte, but um, just in, say, communal living. So I went to Thailand and uh, had the privilege of studying with an erudite and wonderful man called Bhikkhu Payuto. And his... Um, he struck me more than his intellectual prowess. Uh, prowess. He's, he's struck me by his just amazing kindness. You know, this man who is probably most erudite of Thai scholars nowadays, um, and has single-handedly written just about every tr school book for monastic training. 
is um, was capable of sitting there with a bunch of farm women and having an immensely good time and really being kind. And then he was f- capable, you know, having a bunch of snooty college professors coming around just afterwards. And then there was a pick load of kids coming around and he was, he was equally available and equally kind with all of them. It was just amazing. And then I could badger him with my, you know, detailed poly questions and he was kind to me, you know, at 12 o'clock at night. Yeah. Amazing amount of willingness to dispense his energy in kind ways to just every stratum of society. Uh, sometimes we came back, he, because he's famous, he was teaching a lot and in, in, in invitations and coming back on the bus after a six-hour ride and then having a pile of people to receive, basically going to the loo and then starting to receive people who had driven a long way to meet him and talk to him. And in proper Thai fashion, you know, they never ring up and say, we're coming, they just come, you know? That's how, just, just how it operates. So, now, to a Swiss mind, this is impolite. You, just, you don't just dump yourself on people, you know? But in the Thai mind, you know, the Swiss are probably a bit control freaks. So, so, so uh, I said, you know, this is just unreasonable. Give the man a break, you know? He's been, he's been talking, he's been driving there four hours, he's been stuck in the traffic six hours back, and now... You know, what are you going to do to him? If you're so fond of him, as you say, why don't you let him rest? (laughs) And then he just kind of smiled. (laughs) I suggested to him that he needs somebody who manages him. (laughs) He laughed at me. (laughs) He just laughed. I was quite despairing because I cared for the man, and my care would be to protect him, you know, to to manage him, to schedule him. To, I would do my Swiss number if I had been allowed. Yeah, and uh, he wasn't have his my Swiss number done on him. So he just received these guests, and I just couldn't believe how genuinely loving he was, you know. And it was not really, you know, some of these people were quite reasonable and nice and some of them were quite demanding and I felt they were a lot less justified in the amount of time they got from him than other people or in the reason for their being. And some of them just came to complain, yeah? And, you know, if you're a, a monk in Thailand, you, you can be anything from the guy who gives you lotto numbers to the guy who gives you meditation advice to the guy who is the village counselor to the guy who, you know who tells you not to sell your buffalo because, you know, one day you may use them. You know, you, you may be anything, yeah? Monks play a lot of different roles, which we would specialize out here. You'd have legal advice, spiritual advice, psychological advice, therapy. You know, monks could be possibly anything. So, so depending on how you play this as a monk in time, you, after a while you, you cater to a particular clientele, yeah? Uh, but he was just amazing. You know, he, he was there with the kids and he knew what kids needed. He was very capable of calibrating what he had to say to a four-year-old. He knew what they were learning in schools. He, it, it was baffling. You know, I would be challenged to find out what a six-year-old needs to learn in school. Or so. I'd be baffled to find out what a 15-year-old needs to be able to do. It. But he, he just really, in a genuine way, was both intellectually very sharp and at the same time immensely kind. And I knew plenty of intellectually sharp people, but generally they weren't really famous for their kindness. Yeah? 
And then it was some very kind people, but they were generally not famous for their intellectual acumen. Yeah? So for me, this was quite new to have somebody who was really at the top of the game intellectually and also at the top of the game in, human, in terms of human kindness. Yeah? This was maybe the most strongest impression this man made on me. He's bringing these two things together that in my experience and in my heart certainly were not together. Yeah. I know he's an excellent writer. I know he's done a major amount of intellectual stuff and that's why I sought him out. Um, but what impressed me most was not actually his acumen and his skill or his pedagogical breaths. It was basically that in his own heart, I've never seen this man even the slightest way angry, even the slightest way annoyed. And, you know, and some people, they don't get annoyed because they're just not connected. Yeah? So not getting annoyed is intrinsically not a virtue for me. It's nice if people don't get annoyed. But um, I wouldn't just make this as a compliment, not getting annoyed. Some people uh, are just not getting annoyed because they're not available, you know, because they're aloof or they're dissociated or just living up in some happy parallel dimension, yeah? split off. Uh, so, you know, there's much abuse of Buddhist meditation in terms of dissociative techniques and splitting off. And uh, I have my fair share of, uh, I've committed my fair shares in that department and I have developed an eye for this. Uh, this is not just a monastic psychopathology. This is also quite, you don't need to be a monastic to engage in splitting off as a meditator. You know, you can do that quite skillfully and quite, uh, not skillfully, but quite effectively as a non-monastic meditator. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, it's easy to be quiet if you're dissociated and split off. It's easy to not get angry. You know, you're just always calm, collect, cool, aloof. So just being not angry is not an intrinsic compliment in my books. Although I think anger is a severe mental affliction and uh, while it is a develop, there's a developmental need to be able to feel your anger and connect with your anger and even, even express your anger. I think there are developmental needs there. Uh, I have no doubt that anger is basically a mental affliction which uh, needs to be profoundly understood and the energy that is... Uh, uh, imprisoned in that energy, that energy needs to be in some way released for other things than anger. But in his case, I was clearly uh, uh, aware that he was profoundly connected with these people. And they all felt that. The farming women felt that. And he wasn't an intellectual with them. The kids felt that. And he wasn't patronizing or he wasn't wasn't even lecturing them. He he related to them. That's really impressive. They talked. Yeah? It wasn't he who talked. They talked to him. Yeah? And that was really powerful to see. And impatient people. Um, if I anything wished, you know, he would have been more strict with the, with the, the ones who, abu- who I believed abused him, abused his time or his energy or dumped on him. Or, but maybe I got it wrong even there. You know? Maybe what I met was not their abuse of him, but what I met was my own impatience or my own indignation or my own uh, sense of propriety or measure or something like that. I'm not even sure about this anymore. 
but it did not seem to harm him. And he wasn't a strong man. And yet he tapped into an energy that was clearly not his, that was clearly transpersonal, an energy that I could see him. I could see him like a sick teenager with stomachache before having to give a talk because he was, his digestion was never good. And then I thought, oh God, I'm not even sure that he managed to climb up that chair. And then he climbed up that chair and then he started talking and he was very feeble. And then after a few minutes, suddenly I could see that he would connect to something. And I could see that something would start to flow. Energy would come into this man. And he started to hold an audience and he started to feed, put out that energy that kind of, that came to him. And he could give wonderful talks and quite lengthy talks at that. And I was baffled. People were rapt. People were there, noting, you know, one hour, two hours, and it was good. It was really good stuff. People who would doze off after no time if you just tried to talk to them in other situations. Yeah. It's hot in Thailand much of the year. And, um, and then I, he would stop his talk, and I could see he was a lot better shaped than he was before. And then we'd kind of drive away, and I could see him gradually sort of coming down. And I've seen that countless times. It was quite obvious to me that this was not a personal energy. This wasn't just his, his performer persona, which was kind of, you know, feeding off the attention of a few thousand in the audience or so. It was, it was something he tapped into, and he made available as soon as he tapped into it. It wasn't his, and he knew it wasn't his. It wasn't his glory, or it wasn't his extraordinariness. It was something he had found a way to tap into and to unstintingly pass it on. Yeah? And people felt that. I felt that. So, metta. Kindness. Willingness to befriend. I would like to particularly emphasize the intentional dimension of these Brahmaviharas, not the emotional dimension. Um, I think I have made very clear yesterday that Brahmaviharas are neither feelings, nor are they emotions, nor are they states, uh, nor are they just meditation objects. They're all of these things, and yet they're more. They don't map neatly onto Western notions of the mind. We have to acknowledge that there are certain things we can just we can't just map. Yeah. Even with close languages that doesn't work. And with uh, languages that come to us from a long distance and other cultures that works even less. So, so we have to acknowledge that there are bits in Buddhist psychology that don't neatly map onto our own psychological models. Karuna is often referred to by the older word in the Pali Suttas, which means Anukampa. Anukampa means to tremble along with something. And I think that is very, very graphic. Yeah? Kampati, to tremble. Anu is a kind of prefix with, we can translate it with along with, going with the grain of something, going with the flow of something. So trembling along with some suffering in another being. It's the capacity of resonating with what is painful and what is grievous, uh, what is sad in another person's life. This trembling along with, um, I think the Latin misericordia comes pretty close to it. We can't say that anymore. Um, 
And the, the term compassion, I think, does quite justice. This is one of the happy instances of translations. It's not pity, because pity is generally a self-statement. You know, I pity the poor bastard uh, and does tacitly feel better. You know, I make a distinction... Uh, uh, what the uh, French sociologist Bourdieu calls a, um, a gain of distinction. You know, by pitying some poor guy, I basically say, oh, I have it a, a lot better. You know, I make an implicit self-statement about the perceived um, depravity or poverty or misfortune of some other person. And instead of actually connecting with this other person's pain, I'm connecting with a little... Uh, selfing activity here to bolster up my own self-construct. Thank God I'm not in that position. Yeah. Maybe even tinged with a little bit of gratitude. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But basically, using the other person's pain to distinguish myself from that situation and feel a little better. Yeah. That's why it can be such a relief sometimes to see horrible things in TV. Yeah. Oh, God, thank God I'm living in Frankfurt. We don't have as many shootings as they have in Washington, D.C. or so, yeah? Something like that. This is a... um, These are ways of relating to... Apparently relating to pain, but not really relating to the pain. We're relating to our self-construct, which is a pastime we we engage in quite a lot because these self-constructs fundamentally are not just delicate, they're fictional. Yeah? And for them to be any more or less sustainable, we need to keep doing this. Yeah? That's one of the problems with self. It doesn't really hold water. And the only way we can keep it up is by keep doing it. Yeah? We need to keep that selfing business going. Otherwise, we start getting a little funny around our frills. Um, So sometimes we pretend to actually connect with others, but we don't connect with others. We only use others to relate to them in terms of a self-object. Now, compassion is not this. Compassion is actually meeting the other and allowing, as I described last night, making that space here in the heart and allowing this here to open so that the pain of the other can come in here so that the other has more resonant Space and I am willing to feel, I am willing to tremble along with the other. Now, that's not the whole of it. It's, it's not just me uh, basically jumping into the same pit as the other has fallen into and commiserate with him. Um, but it is my willingness to allow some of that pain that has occurred to somebody else to be felt here by not denying the connection I have. Now, that is not politically correct thing to do, you know. This is also not a safe thing to do. It is also not, um, make, it doesn't make me feel more independent or it doesn't make me feel more strong. It doesn't, you know, it's a risky thing to do. Yeah, we feel the pain of others and that generally act, activates our own pain. Yeah? So that. So if I have trouble with my own pain, if I have repressed my own experience of grief or pain, if I uh, feel overwhelmed by the pain in my own life, I will, whenever I come in touch with pain in other people, feel that the pain in myself is being activated. So this is quite challenging. 
I have to have some kind of relationship to that which is painful in my life if I want to be able to hold the pain of somebody else. So it's quite impossible that I could hold somebody else in his or her pain when I'm not willing to hold his own being in his or her pain. Yeah? So that's why we find that um, sometimes very difficult and challenging. And that's where also very clearly where these, teach, where these practices meet. You know, at some point it does not make sense whether I'm practicing with this being's pain or whether with somebody else's pain. It doesn't really, it's the same work. Yeah. If, I, if this being here is mindful, it's also mindful of what's going on with you. And we know that. We know, we all know, the appreci- we appreciate the experience of love. We know that love frees us from images we hold other people's imprisoned in. Because if we love someone, we give this person a lot of our attention. And because if we give this person a lot of our attention, we see this person change. And it's very difficult to reduce this person to a few statements. She's always like that, he's always like this. Yeah? With people whom we don't love, it's very easy to say how they are, yeah? few quick strokes with our broad brush and the caricature is there, you know. Silly cow, it's always been a cow, will always be a cow. Don't need to look very closely, you know. I have a very clear memory of it, you know. See, nothing has changed. It's going to stay that way for the rest of her life. We don't give them attention. We refuse to acknowledge change. We refuse, we, we refuse to acknowledge development. We r- refuse to acknowledge complexity. We just jump. We have framed something in an unfortunate instance. An exchange has happened. It was unhappy. And I keep going back to that image of that unhappy situation when this person somehow is mentioned or turns up in my visual field or sits in my same board meeting or something, yeah? I go back to my memory of that situation. I do not liberate that person from my memory of her. Yeah? I keep insisting that my memory is more real than what she's actually doing right now. Yeah? And I do that when I do not like people. I do that if I do not give them a lot of attention. Um, I just kind of relate. Instead of relating to them, I relate to my own memories of them, which may not be very accurate. My memories have, you know, I hate to admit, have been proven wrong. Yeah. My perceptions have been proven to be fairly inaccurate. In fact, most of my perceptions have a lot more to do with me than with whatever I believe to perceive. Yeah. If I'm hungry, my plate of spaghetti looks rather different than if I'm not hungry. Yeah. So my perceptions are never neutral. They're always informed by need, by my history, by my current situation, by all kinds of things, degrees of availability. Um, So my memory of my perception tends to be not more accurate than my perceptions, which I have just made clear that they're probably not very accurate. So holding somebody to the memory of your perception of of this person is a really unjust thing to do. It's a really unfair thing to do, particularly if you have any dealings with this person. And if we love, we do the opposite of this. We're willing to continually update our perceptions. We're interested in the most minute change of voice, of mimic. Uh, of, we're interested in this person even if he or she is not here. 
We're trying to think what this person is going through right now, what her challenges are. We empathize. We, we try to put ourselves into this person's shoes. Yeah? When we connect, we check in and find out how she's doing now, not how, uh, how, how did she look before she had gray hair or so. You know, we, we connect with her now. Yeah? And that is basically the freely the free offer of continual awareness. Yeah. That's the most precious thing we can probably give to anyone, including ourselves, is the attunement and the continuity of a refined awareness. Yeah. That's what love is, to do that and continually extend that kind of awareness to someone. Yeah. It's not the feeling. Yeah, that's that too, but it's what you keep doing. Now, now attention is an intentional activity. You have a say in this. If you don't make this choice, if you don't have the say in where your attention goes, then some other people will have some fairly clear ideas what they want your attention for. Yeah? Because they know if they get your attention, very soon they will get your vote, they will get your money, they will get just about everything off from you as long as they have your attention. Yeah? There's some very skilled people out there uh, who receive lots of money to be spin doctors and advertisement counselors and, uh, you know, people do a very careful study of psychology to sell you their stuff, you know, whatever their stuff is. Yeah. Now, these people, they will get a say where your attention goes if you don't get a say in there. Yeah. If you don't take the responsibility and make clear to yourself what your values are, what your goals are, what you wish for, what you want to support by attending to, then these folks and your bad habits uh, will basically rule the attention game. It's the most precious commodity. It's even more precious than money now. And it's limited. It's finite. You don't have a lot of attention. As I said last night, it's limited both in its capacity to process information and then uh, also our lives are ending. Yeah? We're not having time to do all things under the sun. We have to make choices. If we do not make the choices, the chances that we find happiness and contentment and do the things that are important to us, it's unlikely that we will get there if we let other people make these choices, people whose motives may be less, um, less wholesome or just less, less concerned with, with this being. So the intentional part of attention is crucial. And it is the intentional part in these Brahma Viharas that is my emphasis here today with you because it is that I can do. It's not how I feel while doing it, it is that I can intend to respond in kindness, in friendliness. Now, the minimum value of friendliness is the offer of coexistence. Yeah? Knee pain, I can't really love you, but I offer you to stay there. I'm not going to kick you out of my experience. I'm not going to kick you out of my knee. I allow you to, co to exist in my current experience of me being sitting, me sitting here. Yeah. That is the cheapest. That is the, the, that's the kind of, I don't know what, maybe you have chains here in, in the US. 
that's the Walmart kind of sort of 9-11, uh, not 9-11, 7-11 kind of, you don't go below that. Offering coexistence to something unpleasant. Yeah? Lowest quality of metta is kind of the offer of coexistence to something. You know, this is quite real. If you're not willing to acknowledge the coexistence or the, the right to coexist to somebody, it's very difficult to negotiate with this person. Yeah. If you want to know how that in practice looks, look over into the Middle East and you see what it does, basically, if people do not want to acknowledge each other's coexistence. That's what it looks like. Yeah. So if you don't want to coexist with your knee pain, you're either going to repress that knee pain or that knee pain is going to make it hellish for you. Yeah. So that's basically the offer. So Metta says, I acknowledge your right to coexist right now in my, uh, somewhere below my patella, my inner meniscus, that, you know, little cartilagey sort of frizzy ending that protrudes a little bit too much and scrapes. I allow you to coexist. And I'm willing to have this experience, not because it's a pleasant experience, not because I choose this experience, but because it's happening. Yeah. That's the key phrase. Because it's happening, I'm going to have a relationship. I'm going to have a relationship, not because it, can, it is the thing I have carefully engineered to have happen so that it, I feel good about it, but it, 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 it delights to take place and I am here to experience it and the most reasonable way, not just the most nice way, but the most reasonable way to relate to that experience is acknowledging its existence. It's, I emphasize, it's reasonable. Anything else is unreasonable because anything else would force me either into combat or into submission or into denial or into distraction. And all of these options give me worse possibilities at actually outgrowing this experience or transforming this experience into something that more resembles what I like and what I find meaningful. Do I, does this make sense? I'm trying to sell you meta as a reasonable thing, not as a nice thing. Yeah? You know, meta is good for economics. Yeah. If, if people break off doing trade with each other, very soon they will start beating each other off. If you, if you want war, stop trading. Yeah. Stop metabolizing with these people. And just go, let perceptions go to fester. Stop communicating. Pull back your ambassadors. You know, start relating to your own fears of these people instead of relating to the people themselves. Yeah. Very soon you'll start arming up. Very soon you'll go to war with them. Yeah, it's, it's that simple. Metabolism relationship. Is what stops us from war. Yeah? It's our willingness to relate that keeps things open. Our metabolism operates like that. I don't have kind of blood cor corpuscles who says, I'm not going to transporting any CO2 molecules today. You know? <laughs> Sorry. Saturday. Not, no work. You know? No way. Yeah? I'm just going to hang on to my CO2s. I only work on Monday morning again. Yeah, come up again. Yeah. It doesn't work like that. Yeah. 
my whole metabolism hinges. Every little creature on this planet exchanges some gases with its environment, even if they're anaerobic and don't do oxygen breathing and things like that. We're, we're continually metabolizing. And if we, if we refuse to do that, right, by acknowledging that other things are there or by blocking the flow, we'll end up with some form of restriction. In some places, this would be called stasis and, you know, tissue damage, and followed by atrophy. In other cases, this would be called, you know, breaking off of diplomatic relationship, uh, starting propaganda, uh, going to war. You look at, it's, it's an embarrassment to our politics that at the time when crisis is, is highest, we tend to break off communications. You know, this is, Psychologically, this is what we did in the sand pit. You know, you're going to hit my castle, I'm going to hit your castle. You know, I'm going to move. This is my corner, this is your corner. And if you come too close, I'll have a shovel. Yeah. You know, on a level of politics, we still do that. We still go back to sort of a, the psychology of six years old, six year olds or five year olds. And this is how the world we inhabit. So, Metta. Uh, and Brahmaviharas have a fundamental um, take on this. They say, if it hurts, go there. If it hurts, it needs attention. If it hurts, don't try to get rid of it, cut it off, shoot it to the moon, or kill it. If it hurts, it calls for attention. Why not give it attention? It seems so simple, isn't it? And yet it's challenging because it is insulting to our wishes, it is insulting to our self-construct. It is insulting to uh, the ideas we hold, how things should be, how I should be, how the world should be, what I deserve, you know, all these constructs. It threatens these constructs. It insults these constructs. It disappoints my expectations. Not that my expectations are known to be particularly realistic or so, but uh, or even particularly conscious, you know. Many of my expectations that I feel disappointed about when they're not met were never conscious. You, know? you just walk out and you realize, oh, that was it. And at that moment, you begin to think, what did I actually wish? You know, I was hoping this would. You know? And you find most people rate what happens to them, not in terms of what they actually experience, but in terms of what they hoped for or expected. Even unconscious expectations work quite well in this. In fact, they work even better. You know, the best disappointments come from unconscious expectations. It's kind of hitting the reef under the waterline, you know. So, the Brahma Viharas are, you know, on one level they sound nice. You know, it's nice to have nice feelings for other people uh, or for this being. But they're more than just trying to make us nice. We have to understand that the bottom line of these Brahma-viharas is if we do not engage Brahma-viharas, what are the options? The options are conflict, the options are denial, the options are distraction. And all these options are not very salubrious. They're not salubrious in psychological terms, they're not salubrious in sociological terms, they're not very good pedagogy, they're certainly lousy diplomacy. They're bad politics. So Brahma-viharas have a lot to say on many layers in our life. Yeah. Could I'll speak about the others 
in a moment. Let's sit for another 10 minutes and then we have a one and a half hour break till two o'clock. Time flies. Good. Meet you back in here at 2 o'clock. And uh, thank you for the apricots, wherever they came from. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.